0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So, Shane, your uh, your ID badge is looking a little a little different these what
2: days. What is? A little blue. It's a what? nondescript blue badge.
0: Wait a minute.
2: Your Washington Post
0: (gasps) reporter, Shane Harris? That's me. It doesn't
1: even say the post on (laughs) it. It It literally
0: looks like an intelligence (laughs) (laughs) community. (laughs) Because democracy (laughs) has died in darkness. (laughs) No, no. It doesn't need to say the Washington (laughs) (laughs) Post. Exactly. You should just know. Because if you don't know.
3: (laughs) It's the Shane goes all fancy edition. (laughs) Our very own Shane Harris. It is true. With a new job.
2: (laughs) It is true. I cannot keep a job. <laughs>
3: um, can I just say this is the third job Shane has had since in doing this podcast? While we have been recording Radical Security. That's right. He's Maybe
2: don't tell my current employer. <laughs> actually, well, they kind of know at this point, don't they? They've seen the resume.
0: You're but, just yes. ascending to the highest heights, my friend. It's,
2: it's official. I work at the Post, as in the Merrill Street Post.
0: You work yeah. with Merrill Street? <laughs> yes. Tell everyone. <laughs> that's what we really want to know (laughs) she's
2: just like she is the character
0: is based on shane Shane.
2: (laughs) hello and welcome to rational security the bloody nose edition i'm shane harris newly employed reporter (laughs) i've been without job for two weeks how was it? It was touch and go there for a little bit. <laughs> no. Were
1: you just like puttering around in your bathrobe? You know, it's funny.
2: So I, I read over the break. I read Catherine Graham's memoir, no uh, which is terrific. Uh, I went and saw the post, obviously, uh, and like seriously, by the end of it, I was climbing the freaking walls. I was like, I have gotta get back to
3: work. Yeah, vacations
2: suck. Don't yeah, care. I mean, people were saying, like, oh, you should travel, you should do this, you should do that. I was like, what oh, do you? But there's too much to do. No, it was, um, but it was nice to take a little break off. It, It went very slowly, though. And the holidays were part of it, too. So it's kind of like.
3: So oh. when's your first, like, breaking news?
0: Seriously, man. I mean,
2: hopefully very soon. I'm you know? excited about the it. The
0: world to, of journalism is your oyster now.
2: I need to make sure they know this wasn't a terrible mistake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you People haven't won a Pulitzer yet? What are you, you doing? Could you help
2: out with, yes, whatever <laughs> you want, anything. Sure, yes, I can do it. Yes.
3: <laughs> That's why you've been seeing twi- tweeted photos of Shane mopping out toilets and, you know, per- serving burgers. How
2: can I help? <laughs> Oh, I'm here with my good friends Tamar and Ben Whittles and Susan Hennessy. Hi guys. Hi. Hi. We're recording on an afternoon again. It's Wednesday afternoon. With Scott. You know what that means. Or bourbon.
0: Sun- suns over the yard arm.
2: Yeah, there you go. This week on the podcast, the Trump administration signals it may launch a military strike on North Korea or not. The U.S. announces it's cutting aid to Pakistan, and the originator of the Steele dossier tells his side of the story. Um, We'll start with, uh, this is where we're getting our title this week, uh, a uh, great column by Jerry Seib and my former employer, The Wall Street Journal, talking about U.S. military and administration officials discussing a bloody nose strategy on North Korea, Uh, essentially the idea being here that if there's another provocation from North Korea, the United States might launch a strike on a military or nuclear facility as a way of giving North Korea a bloody nose and showing them we mean business. Um, So I guess that leads to one first question. Is it really necessary for us to bomb North Korea for them to see that we mean business?
0: You know, I think a lot of the policy discussion around North Korea relates to how do we signal in a way that we are sure they understand? Is Kim Jong-un a rational actor or not? Does he accurately perceive what we say or others say uh, or intend to communicate to him? Well, you know, On the one hand, you might say, okay, a military strike is pretty unambiguous, hard to misunderstand or misinterpret that. Um, On the other hand, history teaches that uh, actually it's very easy to misunderstand uh, military action. So while the U.S. intention might be to just land one punch and then step back and wait and say, you know, we don't intend to go farther, we're just showing you we can – um, I mean, from a sort of technical perspective, I don't think anybody doubts that the United States can strike in North Korea. Right. Um, At least
2: to all the North Koreans.
0: Right. There's, there's just no reason. It is a very, very easy thing to imagine that the North Koreans might then feel the need to bloody our nose in return, uh, send their own message back to us, and you can very quickly get on a slippery slope to unintended escalation and all out war.
1: I mean, one of the interesting things is as we're at least floating these possibilities, it seems like others are pursuing sort of a deterrence by entanglement or deterrence by overture strategy. So the South Koreans are meeting with the North Koreans, trying to encourage the North Koreans to send athletes to the Olympics, sort of this notion of, well, if you have a, if you have athletes there, you're less likely to, to do testing during that period. Sort of they're, they're trying to, um, to de-escalate the situation right as the United States is sort of floating these, you know, clearly escalatory uh uh, ideas
0: well i think that's right although first of all one should ask who is it that the south koreans are trying to deter the north koreans yes but maybe us as well maybe that entanglement strategy traps us a little bit as well i just want to say and i
3: don't want to like uh, sound like a complete crazy person here because I am in no way advocating a bloody nose approach to North Korea. Too late. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I think... Uh,
0: ben Wittes calls for a bloody nose He is the in North only Korea. person who
1: kicks people for fun in this room. So. That's true. Uh, not the only one
3: who has, though, because Shane, once upon a time, did taekwondo as well. I also uh, kicked and dogs. in fact, used to do it with Kim Jong-un <laughs> and once gave him a bloody nose. Um, look, there is a little bit of a history of bloody nose strategies as a form, as a piece of, of of deterrence. And the most famous example of it is uh, the Israeli attack on the Osirak plant in Iraq. And there was a more recent. Uh, strike. No, no,
0: that wasn't deterrence. That was denial. They destroyed Iraq's nascent nuclear capability. That wasn't deterrent.
3: Right, on the other hand, you could easily imagine so it wasn't a deterrent of a strike, it was a, it was but it was a grave risk of an ex- escalation and what happened was Iraq put the tissue to its nose and backed off. And something similar happened with Syria. The big difference here is that this is already a nuclear power. And it's a nuclear power with a retaliatory capacity directed at one of the most densely populated urban locations in the world, and so I think I am not opposed in principle to the idea that you know knocking out some piece of uh, of the capability might be a. A uh, plausible uh, strategic option in some situations, and I think when you look back, it has been an effective one at times. The problem here is that you, you, and actually the person who ex, who I think articulated this very well was Steve Bannon. You know, explain to me how ten million people in Seoul don't die in the first half an hour, and I think that's actually the reason why. You know, it, look, if somebody has a bloody nose and they can kick you in the groin. That's not a good deal, right? And so I'm not opposed to giving Kim Jong-un a bloody nose, but I am opposed to what I think is the very predictable escalation that it would uh, likely produce. And I would want to know... What are you thinking about as a way of deterring that subsequent reaction?
0: Right. So I think that there's so much about this that is risky that it's hard to understand why the administration would f- float this by leaking it to Jerry's side at The Wall Street Journal, right? Like, what is that about? If you're going to bloody their nose, you probably don't want to telegraph that you're going to do it. And isn't Trump always proudly saying that he's not going to telegraph his moves in advance. So, why this leak? Why now? And I think here's my hypothesis: sneaky, sneaky hypothesis. Um, today,
3: just like do an evil laugh. Now,
0: <laughs> million dollars. Uh, today, Trump spoke to uh, the president of South Korea, um, President Moon Jae-in, and about the talks that he held, that Moon held with the North Koreans uh, over the weekend. And he conveyed very reassuring messages in that phone call that he's open to talks with the North Koreans under the right circumstances, uh, that he hopes that President Moon conveyed to the North Koreans that the U.S. is not going to Uh, undertake any military activity during the Olympics. And of course, we'd already agreed to stop doing exercises during the Olympics that are taking place in South Korea. So it's just it's a weird jarring juxtaposition, this bloody nose threat one day, and these reassuring messages the next. And, you know, I think that this is um, what we have in the way of a White White House strategy. I think it's a little bit of the crazy man theory Uh of international diplomacy, um, this orchestrated leak about our readiness to do military strike followed by a willingness to talk.
1: But it does seem like for this to be a coherent strategy or or a safer, predictable strategy, you need extraordinary message discipline. And so this is an area in which our right. tweeter in chief what could what's be that you say un- unbelievable <laughs> liability. Right? Are you suggesting he doesn't have message discipline? Right, but like sort of walking. It's hard to imagine how how somebody like McMaster could even be. Contemplating this kind of strategy, considering the fact that you have a um, you have someone who is, it's completely plausible that the president might decide to send a tweet that blows up, you know, maybe literally instead of figuratively the whole strategy. So I, I think sort of factoring in. That element of it and how central that sort of discipline would be—it—it it just seems like a sort of absurd on its face.
2: Well, and you, and you even if you had perfect message discipline, and we know this from history with you know near misses with other nuclear powers, namely the Soviet Union. I mean, you have to understand, presume, or hope that the North Koreans are not only reading your intentions politically the right way, but are. Literally being able to read what it is you're doing and not mistaking your, you know, your 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 B two bomber launching a targeted strike on a nuclear facility with the first wave of an attack that's going to try to knock up Pyongyang. So
3: just to give you an example from a different context of the merging of the two of Susan and Shane's point, this morning the president tweeted, and I don't have the tweet in front of me, an angry thing about how these Russia investigations keep dragging on and on. And he ended the tweet by saying, it's time for Republicans to take control, mm. exclamation point. Mm. Now, just before we started recording Rational Security, I read Chuck Grassley's reaction to that in Politico. And Chuck Grassley is a, a member of the same party as the president in the same country, responded, I don't understand what he meant. <laughs> um, and um, so like, if that's, how a, a, an allied member of the same party in, who's the, same in the same city like, in the same country the they were in a meeting together
2: yesterday <laughs> who speaks
3: the same language reacts to presidential messaging poor kim jong un what is he supposed to do yeah and he's probably not even watching cnn <laughs> he watches only fox, fox. like like fox the president and fox and friends yeah
2: All right. uh, Let's move on. Uh, Let's let's spin around the globe, shall we? (laughs) Follow me as we turn the globe to Pakistan.
1: (laughs) Everything's going great. Just hop around. It's fine. Let's go over here.
2: Oh, another problem. Uh, So the U.S. has announced it's planning to cut aid to Pakistan. Um, Tomorrow, let me start with you again on this. So, okay. Okay there there's been some some some, some back and forth it's, I thought in the coverage of you know whether we're intending to cut this aid now or whether we are putting them on notice clear that up for me a bit but why this decision at this moment to do this when my first reaction when i saw this was has somebody i mean maybe this is my own ignorance but has somebody explained to the president that Pakistan allows us to do all kinds of things with our military in Pakistan Including blowing up bad guys so we don't want to come over here. And why would we be suddenly threatening to allegedly Shane. Allegedly. <laughs> well, <laughs> Susan can neither confirm nor deny that.
1: <laughs>
2: Is this, like, you know, I mean, maybe we have problems, but this seemed to be like, you know, like, it's like you're having a fight with your spouse or something like this. And it's like, you know, we usually try to work it out and not like move out and burn the house down on the way. Or am I misreading that?
0: No, I think you're right. But I also think it's it, it's a very good analogy. I think in many ways, U.S.-Pakistan relations are a bad romance that just <laughs> has been going on so long. These two just cannot get away from each other, no matter how much they may hate one another at various points. Um, they feed off each other. I, I think that... It's true that Pakistan has been an extremely valuable partner in a lot of counterterrorism activity since 9-11. Obviously, it's the main sort of conduit supply route for our troops in Afghanistan and for the broader effort that we've had underway there for 15 years now. Um, At the same time, Pakistan also uh, contributes to the terrorism problem and contributes to the threats facing the United States and its partners in Afghanistan, in the region. Um, And so it's the duality of Pakistani policy that has frustrated a sequence of American presidents. This is not a new problem. But I think that um, there there was one earlier incident, uh, not terrorism-related, but related to Pakistan's nuclear weapons, uh, that led the United States to cut off assistance. Um, uh, there was uh, an amendment, the Pressler Amendment, passed by Congress that required uh, the um, the government to cut off assistance when Pakistan tested nuclear weapons um, under the George H. W. Bush administration, I believe. And this case of cutting off aid to Pakistan is widely cited across the U.S. government as a disaster for U.S. foreign policy, because then when 9-11 came around, we had a wrecked relationship that we had to rebuild and a lot of mistrust. Um, And so there are a lot of people saying, look, yes, the Pakistanis are super, super frustrating, but cutting off aid doesn't work. We've been down that road before. Um, All it does is deepen their grievances, make them mistrust us even more and make it even harder for us to persuade them to back away from the behavior that we find most problematic. Um, I think that to a certain extent, that's true. Uh, and to a certain extent, there there is evidence across a lot of cases to say that cutting U.S. aid to a partner very rarely gets that partner to change its policy on a major issue. Um, But at the same time, there are a lot of tropes that come up here that are very common to these bad romance kind of relationships. And the one that we're hearing around Pakistan is, wow, we really need them a lot more than they need us, uh, because we have to use them as our supply route in Afghanistan. We don't have to. The alternatives are a little close to Russia and make us uncomfortable, but there are alternatives. Uh, And if we take away our money, the Chinese will take our place, which is another argument that you hear um, about other problematic U.S. partners. So, look, I think, you know, what the Trump administration has done here is something that earlier administrations have thought about doing here, too. Um, But Trump decided to pull the trigger. And just to connect this with the previous segment, you know, the question is how? And what does that message really say? And how much credibility does this move really have? He announced it by tweet. Nobody knew what he meant. When he said he was thinking about cutting off aid, nobody knew for days which aid was getting cut off. We still don't know exactly um, whether it's a full military aid cutoff or you know, partial or what or under what circumstances. And so there's a real question about the credibility of this move. If you're the Pakistani government, how seriously do you take it? When it came out of nowhere, it might just as easily be reversed out of nowhere. And in a way, that's the same problem that we face dealing with North Korea. It's the same problem we face talking to our European allies about Iran. The Trump administration's way of doing foreign policy has just made U.S. credibility minimal. So we've sort of, t-
1: we've, we've focused a lot in the past on um, sort of the process failures and the ways in which, uh, you know, Trump will say or do something that's so disconnected from either DOD or just other parts of the executive branch. So, you know, uh, in the CT realm, uh, you know, adding Chad to the list of, to the travel ban list kind of, you know, came out of nowhere, really seemed to take DOD by surprise, had big ramifications. This is at least not getting the kind of immediate pushback. It seems like usually whenever Trump just tweets something and it kind of came out of nowhere, we then see leaks out of DOD, sort of people trying to manage the the fallout. I I haven't seen as much of that in this circumstance. Is your instinct that, you know, however controversial or, or whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, this is the result of, a thoughtful policy shift that went through some kind of process or or do you think that this is yet another reflection of trump kind of has this sense of, of pakistan not being uh you know uh, such a true friend all the time uh and and wants to posture himself as the tough guy so he just tweets something fine
0: forget it with the aid what where, where do you think we are in that I think that's a really good question. I'm I'm not sure I have a fully informed answer. I remember when his tweet came out and it was while he was on vacation in Mar-a-Lago over the holidays uh, and this tweet came out about Pakistan, somebody who follows South Asia pretty closely tweeted – did the president just get a briefing on Pakistan? Like, <laughs> you, know, you can sort of imagine, because as I said, this aid conditionality question has been tossed around forever and ever and ever. Um, you can sort of imagine somebody sitting down with the president to give him an update on where we are with the Pakistanis. And, you know, we do have this aid that we could try to use as leverage. And then walking out of the meeting and the president saying, yeah, let's, let's use that do aid. It. Let's do it. <laughs> Um, So I I don't think it was entirely unprepared, but that doesn't mean it was a fully considered decision.
3: I want to say a couple words in defense of the president on this. I I will not defend the mode of doing it or the style of delivery or any aspect of that. But I actually think Pakistan is, um, is a uniquely bad marriage. Uh, a uniquely bad relationship. I mean, these are peop- the Pakistani government supports groups that kill our soldiers, and I don't know of another situation in which you the U.S. gives security assistance to countries that kill U.S. service personnel. Um, and and I find it, you know, this has been going on a long time with the Haqqanis and you know. And and elements and with of the Taliban that the the Pakistani government, uh, for its own reasons, chooses to support, as well as giving uh, a home base to Lashkar-e-Taiba, um, and uh, some other genuinely terrible people who do terrible, terrible things. And uh, it is the only state supporter of, state sponsor of terrorism that we don't we on, not only choose not to list, we choose to fund um, in an ongoing, sustained sort of way. And I think that there's a really good case for saying, no, we're not going to be a state sponsor of a state sponsor of terrorism, particularly not one. Against ourselves, but if we
2: do that, and in return, uh, all that you know, let's take that as a given. Then, but if we do that for practical purposes, then Pakistan withdraws the implicit or explicit permission that they give us to conduct drone strikes in Pakistan against these bad guys. What does that expose us to
3: in terms of international law violations? You know, political. Our our position is that we do stuff with consent or if the country is unable or unwilling to manage the threat. God forbid we should have to say what we in fact know to be true, which is that Pakistan is both unable and unwilling to manage the threat posed by groups in the Fatah region, and that we should conduct operations in that region on that basis Uh, which is our stated public basis for the legality of of other operations. And I I just think there's there's a temptation in this situation to say uh, that it's Trump, so it must be capricious and it must be, you know, it must be reckless. And it's possible that it's capricious and reckless and also right. And I don't (laughs) (laughs) think...
0: I don't even disagree with you that, you know... That there's a strong case to make that as a matter of principle, the United States shouldn't be giving security assistance to a government that can that engages in security policy that harms us and our and our troops in the field. Um, I think that. And, I, and that's exactly why this, these aid cuts have been debated in successive administrations. I think the real question is whether we think an aid cutoff is going to change their behavior. And I I have a strong hunch that the answer to that is no. I propose- and, so, and so the question is, like, in alienating them this way, do we not only not change their behavior, but also give them incentive to scale up that behavior in ways that really could cause us problems.
3: I propose, uh, partly because there is not enough profanity on rational security, that we invite Christine Fair on the show next <laughs> week to discuss the US aid cutoff to Pakistan. And um and and that'll be... Because
0: we a, don't bleep things. A um, riot like, of God,
3: fun no. for young and old. We're
1: going to earn that little E that they give. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, We ain't got no
2: sponsors.
1: <laughs> Shit. Yeah, me undies can,
3: <laughs> <laughs> can, can quake I in their boots. I do just have
1: like a flashback to the good old days of Ben being like, God forbid we, you know, and, uh,
3: just
1: call it like it is. You know? yeah, you know, the, <laughs> we'll get back there someday, re- man. Just
3: remind Everybody that I am at heart, an apologist for the national security state and a, and a foaming at the mouth right wing so, fanatic. So right on the wall.
0: You're a handmaiden right of power. Damn no straight. <laughs> Feels All right.
3: good. Let's spin
2: the globe. Travel with me again. <clears throat> so we visit another crisis center, the Senate Judiciary Committee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Glenn Simpson, formerly of the Wall Street Journal. Maybe now the most famous Defrock journalist in America
3: next to Ben. Uh,
1: he doesn't have a canon. Ben, actually, Ben's actually, wait on that.
3: Glenn and I are very different types of defrocked journalists because Glenn sort of claims to still be doing journalism. Ben like, has
1: been excommunicated. He, he, Glenn <laughs> does this
3: like you hire him to do journalism. For your evil cause, basically. (laughs) And then he does something that kind of looked like... I don't even pretend to be doing journalism.
2: (laughs) Says so right there on your plaque. Yeah. Uh, but Glenn Simpson, uh, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, and of course the head of Fusion GPS which is the group that commissioned British intelligence officer, former officer Christopher Steele, to do the famous Steele dossier, um, told his side of the story to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Dianne Feinstein, uh, in a pretty significant break with history, decorum, uh, other nouns we can throw in there, uh, basically said, uh, forget you to the chairman of the committee, I am releasing the entire transcript of this marathon session that Glenn did. Um, I don't know that there were any like major revelations to come out of it, but you know, maybe I'll kick this to Ben or Susan who wants to stick this first. I mean, what it's pretty extraordinary to see inside a closed door session anytime when lawmakers are asking questions and getting responses that they don't presume are going to be made public. But what did we learn or what texture do you think that this added to uh Le Faire Russe that we did not have before?
3: So I think we I think we actually learned a lot, but not about the things that people think we were going to learn about. So uh, first of all, um, I want to commend Senator Feinstein for releasing this. Um, This is a situation in which uh, the only reasonable justification for not releasing it would be the privacy of the individuals in question and the witnesses. Um, And there's nothing classified. There's nothing sensitive. The committee is doing an investigation and the witness asks for the material to be made public. And the chairman refuses uh, over many months while people are disparaging the witness and making casting aspersions on his conduct. That is outrageous behavior on the part of the committee. And I think it is actually I don't know what the rules are of the committee or what rules she may have violated, but to the extent that it was an act of civil disobedience, I think it was a uh, it was a laudable one. And I and I uh, think when you read the transcript, actually the reason Senator Grassley was not um, uh, releasing it uh, becomes pretty apparent, which is that it actually grossly undermines. The conspiracy theories of what the Steele dossier is, uh, how much the FBI relied on it and uh, and what, in fact, they were trying to do. And so here's what I learned. Uh, The FBI didn't get that much from Chris Steele. You know, Mm -hmm. Chris Steele Mm -hmm. did some research. Uh, we still don't know how much of it is v- going to be is validate, va- you know, v- is valid, and how much of it is erroneous. But clearly, some and some, he has a meeting with the FBI in which they chat about it in in July of 2016. Um, they follow up with another meeting in Rome that the FBI uh, reimburses his travel for in uh, late September, I believe. Uh, but this idea that the steel dossier showed up at the FBI and that the investigation flowed out of that and that they they, you know, crossed out the words at the top and wrote FISA application on it and then sent it off to the FISA court and the entire La Faire Russe kind of burst out of the egg that was the steel dossier turns out to be complete nonsense, which is kind of what we expected. Um, but I actually think taking the time, it's a 312-page document. It's worth every reading every page. There's really interesting stuff in there about... Um, about the way fusion GPS works, what it does. It's bizarre relationships with precisely the sort of the people who were out of the other side uh, liaisoning with the Trump uh, people, particularly uh, the Russian uh, lawyer and uh, uh, Veselnitskaya. Um, and um, and there's fascinating stuff about Glenn Simpson's hostile relationship with, with Bill Browder the, uh, of Magnitsky fame. Uh, I think it's a really interesting document, but the most important part of it is just that – Uh, it really shows that the whole discussion of the Steele dossier is wildly, wildly overblown.
1: So I think that's, I I agree with all of that. Um, I really do think it reveals sort of how duplicitous Grassley has been playing this, right? So it's not, Simpson didn't just call for sort of the release of the transcripts out of nowhere. He called for the release of the transcript after Grassley in particular had said that he was uncooperative, hostile, um, and then had made a uh, uh, Grassley and had actually made this sort of bizarre, speaking of breaking with committee protocol, referral to the Justice Department, a crimes report to the Justice Department for Christopher Steele, essentially saying we want him to be investigated for 1001 violations because we think that he's lied. Now, what's so remarkably strange about that particular referral is not just that it was done uh, unilaterally without notifying Feinstein or the minority in the committee, but uh, it's not clear. Right. So what they're what they're saying is that they think that Steele has lied. Steele hasn't been interviewed by the committee. So it, it appears that what they're saying is that they think Steele has lied to the FBI. There's no basis to believe that they have reviewed Steele's communications with the FBI. So they're referring back to the Justice Department information where if there is any sort of split between fact and, and reality and, uh, and uh, steals representations to the Bureau, they're already aware of it, right? So sort of it's a PR stunt on its face. And I do think it's sort of, I think that move combined with what this transcript actually shows Really does show just how sort of partisan and, and inauthentic, at least you know the the judiciary uh, investigation is. You know, I, I do think that it does you know, this sort of obsession with the dossier and and its place as sort of uh, frankly on both sides, mm-hmm. both kind of like the resistance. You know, oh, you know, there's a P tape and right. and it's sort of you know this is the true story and it's just how much is going to be validated, and also the you know oh this is a grotesque abuse of power. I I think it's so strange, sort of how central uh, the dossier has become. I put out like an analogy on Twitter that I got just people got really mad at me about, and I queried to this group if I'm wrong. So my analogy was that the dossier is the the Russia investigation, what the Clinton Cash book was to the Clinton Foundation investigation, a piece of research that came from a potentially biased source, right? In which there had been some information that was accurate, some information that was inaccurate. Its relationship to the inve- to the FBI investigation was basically like any other tip, right? Some random person calls into the FBI, somebody sends them a book or a dossier. The FBI then says, is there a criminal predicate? And they decide if they're going to to investigate. If they're going to look into it further.
3: If Hillary Clinton herself walked into the FBI with a giant tray full of uh, what she described as partisan bullshit and dumped it in Jim Comey's lap and said, this is partisan bullshit about my opponent And Jim Comey went through it and found something that established a a predicate for a criminal investigation. There would be nothing wrong with that. It would be unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, the FBI gets tips and leads – from mobsters and terrorists and drug kingpins and their stooges. So
0: why not from oppo researchers? Well, I was going to say, like,
3: like, the idea that it's unacceptable for them to get tips and leads from Democrats right. is right. is actually one right. of the more pernicious so ideas in this whole g- dispute.
0: Helpful. So here's my question to you guys. Like, now that we know, at least through Simpson's narrative, That Steele and his dossier were not the originators of this FBI investigation, that by the time he spoke to the FBI, they already had information of their own. He may have strengthened or confirmed some of He may have given them some stuff they didn't know. He may even have done that, but they were already on this. Given all of that, are you now more surprised by the way the FBI handled- and communicated about this investigation in the period prior to the election?
3: No. The FBI, there is no way the FBI would ever confirm an ongoing counterintelligence investigation at an early stage. These are the most sensitive investigations the government does. They simply don't talk about them. And, you know, this was unlike the Hillary Clinton investigation, which is – was a completed investigation that the existence of which was public uh, and they were announcing the end of an investigation. This is a midstream, early stage CI investigation um, and it would be wildly improper to talk about it. Shane's so given us
0: this side I, eye. You're looking at me. Dude, <laughs> look, what I, is that about?
3: I know nothing.
1: I think that frames it a little bit in the wrong... So I don't think the question is... People seem to be saying that that this means that Comey should have talked about both investigations. That's that's clearly not the right answer. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not that the FBI, well, they should have just told everybody everything. The question is... Um, you, the, the the alternative option is you don't talk about either that's investigation. Right. And so that's right. And then we're just back to where we originally started in, in terms of that decision to hold the press conference. I, I, this does color that a little bit more. I don't know that it it, it changes it changes oh, anything significantly, but that's what we should be thinking. Although a
3: f- couple things. First of all, Susan is exactly right. The question is not should the FBI have blown its own counterintelligence investigation? The question is, was it appropriate to talk about the end of the Clinton investigation the way Comey did. uh, These are unrelated questions, but they are necessarily going to be asked in tandem. But if there's a criticism of the Bureau's handling, and it's certainly like a valid criticism that lots of people have, it's about the way he handled the Clinton investigation, not about the failure to, you know, blow publicly uh, an early stage CI investigation
0: Okay. So here's my other question. Now that Simpson, we've heard Simpson give his own narrative and kind of um, talk about the care of their work and how they do their research and how Chris Steele came to them and so on. Do you have any, has your assessment of Chris Steele or the credibility of that dossier changed in any way? Does it matter the way Simpson described all that process.
3: Look, ultimately, the credibility of the dossier doesn't matter a bit. What matters is what the FBI and now the special counsel can gather and prove. Um, If something's in the dossier and it may be true, but nobody can validate it, it's not true for public purposes. If it's not in the dossier and Bob Mueller can prove it, like, for example, the George Papadopoulos stuff— it's real. So whether something is in the dossier uh, actually doesn't matter a fig and um, and the reason the dossier matters is that it's part of two grand conspiracy theories one of the left in which there's a mysteri- a mythical P tape somewhere out there that the moment we prove it all it's going to bring down the, the tower in one you know, and the other is a conspiracy theory on the right that the entire investigation was kind of born in original sin. And both of these are political fantasies. And uh, the right answer is that the name Christiel should not be a big part of this discussion. And the name Glenn Simpson shouldn't be a big part of this discussion. And Chuck Grassley shouldn't have spent 10 hours interrogating this guy. I mean, you know, couldn't have, I mean, Glenn is a big boy and he can handle himself. But, um, uh, you know, he, he this is not the way the Senate Judiciary Committee should be spending its time.
1: The, the one thing I do think you can say, and, and I agree with all of that, <clears throat> I do think you can say that now there are, look, there are two totally separate sort of strands of evidence that that originated in different places and produced different types of evidence. Um, They one doesn't validate the other. But they certainly are both moving in the same direction, right? So it's not that there's one thing that's producing, you know, producing information that we're seeing, right? We think we're seeing multiple things, but we're actually seeing the same thing because it's all coming out of the Steele dossier. Now we know that, no, we're seeing the Steele dossier. We're seeing information that's coming out of a totally separate investigation that is not based on the Steele dossier. And those things, while not exactly the same, are largely consistent and are largely consistent in ways that frankly are pretty disturbing that's not anything close to saying it's a slam dunk or it's validated but i do think that it does elevate the significance of that much more because you have different things that you know they don't contradict one another
2: all right let's move on to object lessons um ben what did you bring to class today
3: I have the world's best object lesson. It's a high bar. <laughs> it is an email from one Sophia Yan, whose name is familiar to members, uh, uh, listeners of this podcast, because Sophia plays our music uh, and also the music on the Lawfare podcast. And this week... Um, Uh, Sophia got an email from a rational security listener who, for reasons that will become obvious, shall remain anonymous. It reads as follows. Dear Ms. Yan, I've been listening to the Lawfare blog more recently, and after listening to Mr. Wittis always compliment the music, I decided finally to learn more about the piano player. And so, if you are inclined, and ever in the D.C. area... I'd like to ask you out for a coffee or a bite to eat.
1: Cheers. Aww.
3: So this uh, is the first time that we are aware of that Sophia's piano playing has ever uh, provoked a date request from a stranger.
0: It's pretty uh, adorable date it, request. It is, I think she should do it. It is yeah. pretty
3: adorable. So we're going to post um, uh, uh, a Twitter poll. No. Whether, oh, really? whether, <laughs> for, uh, for rational security listeners, whether Sophia Yan should go out on a date uh, for coffee with the author of this email, and uh, I am going this to poor guy, and and it
1: could just be an innocent request. I mean, maybe it's not a romantic overture, but just a music lover. Yeah. Uh, it
3: could be. Uh, we we're, we're we're reserving judgment on all of that. But Sophia uh, will. Follow the vote of rational security listeners. In fact,
1: you guys can vote on all of Sophia's life streams. her <laughs> haircuts. We're gonna post it all on Twitter. You guys, it's like the
0: Truman Show, but this is, for Sophia. And
2: this is the answer to our sponsor problem. Since we don't have sponsors, we're just gonna create a dating service. <laughs> It'll be the premium subscription model. Yeah,
3: exactly. Subscribe the to the podcast
2: service. is free, but you have to pay to get a date a week for the dating service.
3: <laughs> anyway. So uh, when this episode of Rational Security goes live, I will post uh, a a, uh, the question of whether Sophia should uh, should should accept this date or not. All right, very good. Uh, Tomorrow, what's your object?
0: Uh, I have a sad object, Um, and it's really just a a piece of news, uh, which is that we lost a great colleague last night in Sean Brimley. Um, Sean was a fellow Obama administration um, appointee. He served in OSD policy at the Pentagon when I was at the State Department. He was a White House director for strategic planning on the National Security Council staff after that. And um, for the last five years has been executive vice president and director of studies at uh, CNAS, the Center for New American Security. He uh, was an expert in strategy, defense strategy, um, force planning, force posture, uh, and mostly just an incredibly nice and decent guy and a real booster of all of his great research team at CNAS um, and uh, and a partner to everyone he worked with in, in national security policy. Uh, taken from us way, way, way too soon um, by cancer. And uh, so just a a shout out to his colleagues at CNAS, to his his wife and kids, uh, wishing them comfort and bidding farewell.
2: Thanks for that. All right, Susan.
1: Well, on a slightly lighter note, um, mine is a my object lesson is a fudge recipe mm. um, provided by one Mike Pompeo. You may know him as director of the CIA. Oh, wait, that
2: Mike Pompeo. This
0: is a secret fudge recipe. Are you authorized to disclose it?
1: I, yes, it's been declassified through the proper channels.
0: Polo step. Um, <laughs> wait, it's been literally declassified, right?
1: I don't think it was classified <laughs> in the first It would be so much uh, better story if the pledges were classified. But um, Ben uh, had posted about Mike Pompeo's... um. Uh, Christmas message to the workforce um, and had some questions about why it had provoked such consternation. Um, uh, Mike Pompeo had responded, actually wrote a letter to Ben um, uh, that you can read on Lawfare, um, voicing his indignation um, over quote the sad state of affairs that Ben would feel the need to uh, to. you know, forward this innuendo. It's so Um, sad
0: when people FOIA things.
1: Sad FOIA, the sad exclamation point. Uh, FOIA requests. Um, And it wasn't a FOIA
2: request for the fudge recipe. No,
1: it was the FOIA request for the Christmas letter. (coughs) Right. Um, But then Mike Pompeo, I guess as an olive branch, although it was a little bit snarky. Oh, it was more than snarky. It was
2: positively snippy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also sent the fudge recipe, uh, his mother's fudge recipe. Um, And so our uh, intrepid managing editor, Shannon Mercer, made it for our last editorial meeting. So we all got to try it. Um, she reports one that it is suspiciously similar to the recipe that appears on the back of the marshmallow fluff like mm. canister. No way. So I don't know about Mrs. Mercer and plagiar plagiarism uh, yeah. uh, issues. And it, Pompeo's mother is Mercer. In addition to Shannon, which was a no relation. No, really. We are we of. sure? Um, and also, I tried it. super was all right. Okay. I feel like, look, we truth to power. The truth shall set you free. Oh. And Mike Pompeo, your mom's fudge recipe. It's,
0: it's could use okay. some work? It's just okay. Marshmallow fluff, chocolate fudge. That's that it. is it basically like the recipe on chocolate. the back of fluff. I don't really like fudge, right, so maybe what, I'm not. What being is fair. fudge but butter and chocolate? It is basically just butter and chocolate and sugar, right? Yeah,
2: yeah it. It. I, I think I've only made fudge once, and it was off the back of a marshmallow cream. Char too, but I feel like, maybe listeners can tell us, I don't think all fudge has marshmallow cream. Does it? No. It It doesn't. Matthew's saying no, it doesn't. All right.
1: I don't know. Uh, Anyway, I just, I wanted to be candid in my
0: assessment of the recipe with our listeners. But you know, if if Pompeo and his family like it, then that's awesome. It's Mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. It's a tradition.
2: There were some lovely pictures of the family making the fudge together, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really sweet. Mm
0: -hmm. Redacted family
2: that pictures, pictures. Exactly. there were black bars over the eyes of all the people <laughs> except for pike pompeo <laughs> oh well that brings us to the end of another podcast i wish we had some of that fudge
1: and i think there ooey, might be some in the kitchen but it's podcast. this is wednesday it was I made was on monday being... you're gonna eat that fudge James. you're gonna eat that fudge
2: See <laughs> so you feel now you fancy reporter with your mouth full of fudge
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they don't have fudge in the Washington Post newsroom, do they? Um, actually, no. They there's probably no fudge do. Bar. They're so like fancy. It's
2: not like like a no. bar or something. It's not quite. It's like a cross between a publishing company and a technology company. But we don't have free snacks.
0: Do you have a ping pong table?
2: I have not found the ping Foosball? pong table.
1: No. Don't you guys have a bar in the basement or something? Am I making that up?
2: I have not seen it. Maybe I. You I thought know. there
1: was like a. Maybe it's just they all go to. I did to not, not do the of fall
2: bar. tour. Um, no there's a bar around the corner in the hotel that's supposed to be really good but okay. there are are many bars in Washington all the there,
1: right? secrets mm-hmm. of the Washington Post we have, have to pay, pay for all the <laughs> they
2: have a little vending machine it's a fancy vending machine but it's a vending machine unless you can buy Lunchables democracy
1: dies in, Lunchables? in darkness Lunchables small bills <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: my appetite dies in darkness <laughs> Oh, well, you've stuck around this long. <laughs> go, go make some fudge. Rational Security is, of gorgeous production of Lawfare. You can find our show page, like the Pompeo Mercer fudge recipe on the internet. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at R E T L Security. You can follow us on Facebook whenever you leave a rating and a review, or, or I say when you download the podcast, leave a rating and review for us. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell the music music was performed let's see if you get this by Lady Gaga and the bloody North Korean noses
1: not really nobody
2: picked up you were kept saying bad romance Oh, oh
1: oh I, okay. I
2: don't know i mean i want like, a I get stinger it
1: now, yeah i you. Gotcha.
0: all
2: right that's uh, the best i could do
1: <laughs> the funniest jokes are the ones you have to explain yeah
2: there's yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that's the first rule of comedy <laughs> <laughs> that's how you kill it like no way let me explain this joke <laughs> our music is of course performed by the i'm still single but not for long <laughs>
1: Susan so so Andrews yeah. definitely isn't going to kill Ben over that. <laughs> Off the market.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Woodis, and Tamara Coffin Woodis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.
0: Cool fact.